Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com on august 7th from severin films for the first time ever on blu-ray one of the most terrifying movies ever made the changeling it's been remastered in 4k and packed with exclusive special features including a director and producer commentary and interview featurettes I am among those interviewed because I think this movie is one of the greatest ghost stories ever put on film, and it's the reason that I wanted Peter Medak to be involved in Masters of Horror in the first place. The Blu-ray also features the haunting true story of the Changeling documentary short. The limited edition includes soundtrack CD and slipcase. It's from www.severin-films.com. George C. Scott in Peter Medak's The Changeling. And if you listen to our interview on Postmortem with Peter Medak, you know what an amazing life he's had as a filmmaker and how much emotion and sincerity he poured into this most personal film. It's on Blu-ray August 7th. Pre-order it now at www.severin-films.com. Hey everyone, this is Joe Russo, Mixed Postmortem Producing Partner, here to tell you that this week's episode of Postmortem is also brought to you by Fright Rags. Fright Rags is the number one source for horror t-shirts. With specially curated collections created by renowned horror artists, they offer the best art and the best quality anywhere. New this week at Fright Rags, the Ash vs. Evil Dead collection featuring incredible t-shirts and a sliding chainsaw enamel pin. Plus, the just-released, brand-new line of Chucky trading cards. And the first collection of Cabin in the Woods shirts and pins are now available. The collection has three awesome Cabin in the Woods shirts, plus five enamel pins featuring various monsters from the film. Plus, on July 4th, Fright Rags will be releasing a whole new Jaws collection. So, head over to www.fright-rags.com now, and you can enter the code SUMMERSHOCK10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire order. Again, that's SUMMERSHOCK10, the number 10. So head over to www.fright-rags.com now. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The world of horror is an exciting place to be right now. The genre is cyclical, like everything else, but we seem to be in both a creative and popular upswing. Horror in movies, books, television, and comics seems to be what everyone wants to see. Not only that, but originality and creative reach are both encouraged and rewarded by success. Already this year, we've had movies like Get Out, A Quiet Place, and Hereditary making themselves known, and independent movies are getting plenty of rightful recognition. It's encouraging that there is so much creative and cultural diversity in the filmmaking community. Though the percentage of women at the helm of popular movies is lamentably small, they are making waves. Jennifer Kent, Anna Lily Amanpour, Karen Kusama, Zan Cassavetes, Jovanka Vukovic, Kimberly Pierce, Axel Carolyn, and Julia Dokumau uh, have all made important contributions to the genre in recent years, but let's not pat ourselves on the back. One of the problems is that because they are so rare, woman filmmakers are expected to represent their gender rather than just make movies that excite them and us. They are filmmakers, not women filmmakers, and their films deserve to rise and fall on their own merits, not on the chromosome count of their makers. 
The door is opening, and we should all be grateful fresh insights and new ideas from every direction are here. And it's no time to be patronizing and putting films into tight little boxes with expectations due them because of who made them. One of the most brutal films of the year is also one of the most beautiful. I'm not usually a fan of rape-revenge movies because they're mostly based on a hypocritical ethos. They are called feminist or pro-women because the female hero exacts her revenge on the antagonist and wins the day. Usually, that means 85 minutes of exploitive rape and torture, graphic and ugly, justifying five minutes of victory and redemption. Sorry, I don't buy it. I was at a festival overseas not long ago, and most of the movies I saw there could be summed up by that description, though one of them was more like 145 minutes of rape and torture and five minutes of bloody victory. But Revenge, directed by our guest Coralie Farja, is different. First of all, it's beautifully made with vital, inventive construction and a pace that never lets up. The acting is terrific, and it's brutal, bloody, and suspenseful. But one thing that it's not is cruel. Though it's graphic and sheds more than its fair share of blood, it does not revel in the torture of its victim. It's not mean-spirited, though it does not skimp on violence or horror. That might seem like a small distinction, but to me, it means a lot. And we'll talk with the talented filmmaker right after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So, great. how did your interest in film begin? What was the movie that kind of mobilized you as a filmmaker and made you say, I want to do this? Uh, basically, I'm a real fan of genre films. Uh, these are the movies that I watched when I was younger. I was strongly uh, inspired by filmmakers such as David Cronenberg uh, or Paul Verhoeven uh, or uh, or movies that were taking me, you know, in another reality like Star Wars or Indiana Jones or uh, after more dark universes like Cronenberg or Lynch or um, everything that sets or Carpenter as well, everything that you know sets stories in another dimensions or in other realities. So. Um, so for my first feature, I, I really wanted to do something in that field. And the idea really came from the idea of, of the character, um, uh, the, um, the fact that this girl would be seen at the beginning as somebody very weak and very empty because she presents herself in a certain way and play with who how she looks like and the way she uses her body and i wanted that because of that she was going to be a victim of the those guys who think they are allowed to do whatever they want with her and that they can you know erase her as they want and um, and well, before she... we before we get too deeply yeah. into the story of this, I, I'm fascinated by those roots and those those people who inspired you. They're the people I've worked with and uh, from the very beginning and been my heroes as well. So, why do you think you were drawn to the darkly fantastic? Uh, what was what, did you have brothers and sisters? Did you have a happy childhood? Did, that sort of <laughs> thing. You know, the the people think everybody who's in the genre must be fucked up in some way. You know. <laughs> I guess it's true <laughs> in some way. Um, yeah, I, I have a brother and I also had a grandfather. And basically, uh, it's with those two guys that I mostly discovered movies. And it was my grandfather who took us to the movies when we were kids and he was also the, also the one who were showing us the more violent movies we weren't allowed to watch at home. Oh, so mother and father kind of kept the clamps down, but grandpa opened that door for you. Yeah, basically my mother didn't want us to watch violent movies because she thought it would have a very bad effect, you know, on us. And Obviously, yes. Yes. <laughs> and as, you know, as everything that is, 
forbidden, you even want to see it more. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it, I, I think it's my grandfather who first showed me Rambo and Robocop and really? the class at the time. Yeah, because he was very... He was very fascinated as well by those movies who were at the same time very simple and very powerful in the way, you know, they deal with violence and identity and, and all kind of injustice that can be done. So, um, yeah, so that's really how I, I, and also the fact that when I was a child, I was, I think I was bored in the real life, in the real real world, and where I think the only place where I was having a lot of fun was in the movies. I was <clears throat> a massive fan of Star Wars, the original trilogy. My first um, job was answering phones on the original Star Wars. <laughs> really? Oh <laughs> yeah. my God. And I operated R2-D2 on the Oscars that year. Wow. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had all the toys and we were playing, you know, with it and I could, it was for me the magic where everything was happening. I loved Willow, I loved, you know, everything that, you know, places where you could live something that was bigger than life. Did you have a lot of friends as a child or did most of this uh, joy come out of your imagination and from the world of cinema? Uh, It was, uh, I had friends but not many and I was uh, I never managed to fit into groups whatever they were uh, this was my dream like you know being the popular popular kid who would have a lot of friends and you know uh, who everybody would look at but it was not at all the case <laughs> <laughs> so um, you were one of the weird kids exactly <laughs> yes yeah. um, power to the freaks yeah <laughs> I was much more a loner and and yeah didn't I was very scared by the by the real world and by the adult world I guess and so yeah the place where I was having fun was much more in yeah imaginary stuff or uh, I started as soon as there was a, a video camera at home I started making little little films with my friends yeah. you know remaking Star Wars with my toys <laughs> and emotions. Really? And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so do you remember the very first movie that you saw that made you think, I, I would like to do this. I want to do this in one for a living. I think I, I think it really became clear when I started making those very amateur films at home uh, the first really you know videos you do for fun with a camera and I was doing more and more and and when I was about 16 or 17 I figured out that it was really the only place where I was feeling very much alive and and that I yeah really wanted to do it for real and also because it's the time when you start to have to choose you know orientation in school and what you want to do and you know think about universities and all those stuff so that really at that moment that it uh, occurs to me that I yeah that's was the thing I I wanted to do. Um, so it was all together with watching a lot of films and you know being in in the places where I I fancied doing the same stuff. But it was I think the real stuff was making those those first short films about remaking Star Wars. You know <laughs> and you know having my days and nights doing all that and it was so much you know great <laughs> great experience right. and yes well you talk here. about you talk about the foundation of of the direction you would take deciding at 16 or 17 did you go to did you study cinema in school um so when i finished uh, when i graduated from uh, high High school from um, when I was 18 I I wanted to study cinema so I wanted to do the the most popular school in France which is called La Femis and but to be able to 
to apply for the contest, you had to go to university for two years. So basically, I studied political sciences before. Huh? So I did a, a school called Sciences Po, which is a three-year school and which is very, very difficult. And it was a nightmare, <laughs> basically, because <laughs> you didn't have time to do anything else, you know, so you have no free time. It's just very, very selective and competitive. So after three years of that school, when I finished the school, I, I said, OK, I don't want to do no school anymore, even in cinema. I want to be in the field doing what I love because I was so frustrated. I couldn't do nothing I really loved during those three years. And sometimes it's funny how the stars, you know, align <laughs> themselves because in the last year of my political sciences uh, school, uh, just before I passed my exam, there was a shooting of a feature film in the yard of the school. Uh. So I went to watch and I started to speak with the first AD, uh, first AD telling him I really wanted to be an assistant director, work on, work, work on set, and so if he needed someone someday, he could call me. And and three years, three months after, he was uh, he called me because he was looking for an intern, you know, working on set for new films he was making. So that's how uh, I started, and it was kind of a um, yeah, nice coincidence and a nice you know um, uh, way to start. And I did that for three years, two or three years. I I was intern and second ID. And so it was a great way to discover, you know, uh, the life of a shooting, how it works and all the, you know, the backyards and all the, the behind the scenes stuff. So that was your film school was working as an assistant director. Exactly. Yeah, it was the, the first part of my film school. And after a while, I, I said, OK, I, I've learned what I can learn from, you know, from this. Now I have to start doing my own short films to start. So the second part of learning was doing my first short film, uh, which was called The Telegram, and which was very successful in, in festival at the mm -hmm. time. And, and when I finished this one, I didn't know very well how to do to go to feature film and here come the second part of my learning <laughs> your education <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> so um so there were two things there were first i i created and took part of a, a group that we created with a friend directors of mine we all we had Everybody had done short films, and we met ev everyone in festivals. We were short films, and we everybody wanted to make his first features. And we basically decided to gather into a kind of a friendship group where we where we we would be, you know, less alone towards sort you know, of a creative collective that would be a support group, huh? Exactly. And also a way to be able to meet the industry. So we were inviting people already working in the business uh, who were ahead of us, like, you know, other famous directors or scriptwriters or producers or people from the networks, financiers, who would... Uh, share who would share with us the their way of working and how basically the industry works for real and what makes a first feature feasible or not feasible oh, and that's so great a, and they actually showed up <laughs> yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah because when you know when you're one and you're not going to invite somebody you know at your place uh, telling me okay explain to me but when you're six you've done short films you have something to show and and people were very responsive to you know to 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 this and it was great because we basically managed to meet a lot of people, create a real network, you know, um, and also we had people, you know, who you can make read your script if you want or share your ideas if you want feedbacks and and all this support group, which was very helpful for me at, at this time. And also 
helped me uh, to find a way to do what I want to do in a French industry where genre films are almost none you know it's almost impossible to make genre films so they seem to have had a little bit of an explosion in the last few years and starting with Ilves and uh, 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 martyrs and 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 yeah and there are now more and more movies and that's great but at the time when we started it was very very few of them so mm-hmm. um so that was a real help also to you know get out of kind of ideal you know that is maybe too big or too and you know go back to reality see how the industry works and manage to understand it to find a path um into so, it and, so were the other members of your of your group uh their interests very broad in cinema or were they also interested in the genre cinema, uh, cinema as you were um we everybody everyone yeah our common point was we, we were mostly interested in genre uh-huh. in the yeah, in a very wide definition, it can be thriller, it can be uh, sci-fi, it can be horror, it can be, uh, for some of them, it's comedy, which is also a kind of a genre. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's everything that is not very grounded into reality and that is not very realistic, you know, social drama. And that's really what I think gathered us together, uh, sharing those common tastes and and you know having difficulties to making our movies because it was not the the most you know popular genre in yeah. france yeah. so definitely it helped a lot to uh yeah to be able to share with uh, everyone you know uh our difficulties are also our success and learn from everybody and learn from the people who were meeting us and one of the things that's very surprising to people outside of the genre is how supportive we are of one another. You know, I've formed this dinners that turned into the Masters of Horror where all the genre directors get together every now and then and everybody's rooting for each other and it sounds like this group is the same sort of thing. In the mainstream, it seems a little more cutthroat and a little more, uh, there's a lot more jealousy involved and, and cutthroat kind of attitudes. But I think, is it because we're in the gutter together or what? Why do you think um, there is that camaraderie within the horror field? Um, I think, um, anyway, it's it's true that it's a competitive uh, area and it's a tough, it's really a tough job. It's really a tough area. Like to succeed, you have to have, you know, the face really deep inside you to overcome all the difficulties. And I think what we thought with my friends was that we would be stronger not to be in a competitive um, uh, way of working, but to reverse the thing and and start thinking if something benefits to to him, it could benefit to me as well, you know, in, in uh, how do you say? In, uh, well, sure. If it's uh, good for the genre, it's good for us. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and also, um, I think what really helped us was um, uh, getting out of this attitude where it can be very, very quick that you say, "Oh, the system is is bad. It it doesn't want me to make my movies. They are they suck. You know, everybody." Uh, and basically, this doesn't help. <laughs> no, the cynicism can be murderous. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the 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 only way if you want to succeed is start uh, stop complaining and find your own way into the system or create your own system. So um, basically, being in a very constructive uh, uh, way of of thinking and try to go ahead no matter what and 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 definitely, I think in the genre field where in France anyway it's it's much harder than it's in other you know kind of movies it's good to be able to have support and friends and share what you do even even more and and but I think it can be good for 
everyone in every every genre basically now in that in that little group were you the first one to get a a major feature to go uh, yes, I was the first one to shoot my, my feature, uh, and soon after, um, our group is called La Squadra. Oh, it, it has a name. Team, yeah, <laughs> it means, it means teams in, 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 uh, in Italian, I don't know, one of the guys is a fan of football, so <laughs> okay. I don't know okay. how it started, but, uh, and there is another director who just shot his first feature right after me a year ago. And it's called uh, the Sonata. Uh, mm-hmm. um, the director is Andrew Desmond. The, the film is in English as well, and it's kind of more gothic thriller uh, kind of uh, style. So it's in post production now, so it should should be released uh, soon. Fantastic. And Fantastic. yeah, and the other one also have their feature in different um, uh, stage. Financings or so this collective is paying off. That's great. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Your film, the filmmaking, is so confident and assured, and shows such a knowledge of the language of cinema that it's it was surprising to see that it's really your first feature film. Um, tell me how it came together, and then we'll get back into the idea of where we had left off early on. So, yeah. So, sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah how how did the how did the film itself come together? What was your decision to make this movie your first movie? Um, well, there were different different parameters. I would say the, the first one was, uh, as I said, making a real genre film. I really wanted to, you know, to stress who I am, what I like, uh, how I think as a filmmaker, and you know, have really my voice in. For my first feature film um, but I knew that I had to take into considerations kind of very strong limitation in terms of budgets and I couldn't go for a Star Wars kind of movie <laughs> maybe the or, next one yeah <laughs> or too ambitious uh, stuff so I had to find an idea and that would be at the same time um, very simple and, you know, very simple in the elements it would involve, but at the same time that would allow me to create a very strong visual and sound and, and not realistic way of telling things. So, uh, so from the beginning, I, I knew that I wanted to have a very simple storyline that the, the story could be very simple and what would be important for me was the way I was going to tell it, the way I was going to film it and mm-hmm. the way I was going to direct it. And What was your and, pitch when you went in with financiers and uh, studio people? How did you actually pitch the film of Revenge? Um, the very first... Uh, the very first... Uh, pitch I had was basically, um, yeah, the story of a girl who is very sexy and very seductive and very attractive. And she's, she's going on, on holidays with her married lover and she's going to be, um, she's going to arouse the, you know, the interest of two other guys who are coming in advance. And, and uh, um, and when the lover discovers what has happened, uh, he's going to try to silence her. And so she tries to escape and he pushes her off a cliff to <laughs> silence her, basically. And from that point, we don't want to give anything away yet for the people who haven't seen the film, but... But basically, it was setting up this real cat and mouse kind of ferocious thriller. Yeah, exactly. And basically, she was gonna 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 go and seek revenge. And the hunters, because the three guys at the beginning are here for a hunting game, they are gonna be transformed into the hunted. And and when I pitch it for the first time this I knew that immediately that there was something that was resonating that 
there was something about, you know, girls and guys and the way women can be seen and the way a woman can transform and a woman can, you know, take power. This, I knew immediately that there was something. And, you know, when you pitch stories to producers or or people, you immediately know when, you know, it's smooth and something happens or when it's complicated and even yourself, you know, you're... It's difficult for you to make it clear, and 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 people say, "Oh yeah, okay, okay." But <laughs> right. feel- you get tongue-tied and lost in the storytelling. Like, yeah, yeah. And and I knew that this is what I needed—an uh, idea that was really reacting very strong, because I knew the movie would be difficult to make and difficult to finance, because the genre would be uh, an obstacle, basically. So I I knew I needed a very strong identification points and a very simple storyline to you know to help people go for it so were there any films that you used as examples like uh, either for yourself or when you were pitching something you were trying to emulate uh yeah basically i i watched many movies when i'm when i was writing and when the, the writing, you know, went ahead and I had uh, finally a, a treatment that was about 40 pages and that was very, very detailed and I knew that I had found the tone and the main elements which would make the movie very specific and which would give the movie its its soul, you know, and the, the fact that it was going to be, yeah, it's going to be something different even in the story we had seen it a million times <laughs> right after a while when i was started to pitch the, the the project i said basically it's a mix between kill bill and deliverance and ah, great combo very, well yeah this was very powerful too and so i watched i rewatched kill bill and this was one of the movies that um uh, that was a major reference in the way it's, you, you know, um, it frees himself from realistic boundaries. And, you know, he sets the rule of the universe he wants to go for. Like in the movies, like Uma Sorman can, you know, be shot uh, here, like with a, the <laughs> a rifle and two seconds after she gets up and starts... Yes. And keeps going, and nobody cares. And so reality was not that important to you. There are a couple of moments in your film that are kind of preposterous in terms of physics and and uh, biology. Um, but if you love a movie while you're watching it, you'll accept wherever it goes. Is that kind of your philosophy here? Yeah, exactly. When I when I during the writing, I knew that I didn't want the movie to be about survival. I was not really interested in, you know, you know, telling the story of how she's going to find water or food or, you know, it was not what I wanted to go. I wanted something totally uh, different and some place where I could go very far and that would rely on on tension, on on her being kind of a superhero and that's where I wanted to go. And in the other movies I I rewatched during the writing was also Rambo. Uh, yeah. So it's a movie uh, I love for the, the way it creates a real hero and a real superhero who is alone against everybody and, you know, and reverse the the situation and saves himself basically um another one was duel from spielberg oh excellent uh, and i loved the also the that's what the movie for me was about having playing with the very simple elements uh in the chases and making the most of it you know because i knew i wouldn't going to have a big budget and I couldn't have explosions and very, you know, so I had to found to find um, tension in another way and find elements which would be striking and interesting uh, with very, you know, few stuff. 
And in Duel, it's amazing, just one car, one truck, and for 60 minutes, you know, you're like that, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so. well, what's, what's, that's one of the hardest things to do, especially as a new filmmaker. You know, if you have a good script and a good cast and a good cameraman, you can make a good movie. But if you're talking about building tension and suspense and horror and that lead up, that's something that you can't learn in a book. That's something that you really have to learn by doing and by what you watched all the right movies, it seems. Is that was that on your mind? Uh, you know, how how do I best construct this? Um, the thing is, when I write, I I really write with images. I, I I built the movie and the direction when I write. Um, basically, the script was very, very precise in terms of rhythm, pace, shots, everything, music. I was listening to music because definitely it's not a movie with a lot of dialogues and the construction of the scenes are very, very precise so as to work and bring something. So basically, I was I was prepping preparing the the movie when i was writing it i was thinking about the shots the the rhythm where i was going to put the camera and everything was very already precise uh in so, my mind so during uh, that writing process i once you actually got to the formal pre-production process did you shot list did you storyboard how, how did you do the physical prep after you'd done this complete detailed screenplay um, I di I couldn't storyboard because we didn't have enough money to have a real storyboarder. But I kind of uh, storyboarded myself with pictures and you know uh, reference images, sometimes very simple drawings, and and so I had a kind of a how do you say a, a patchwork uh -huh. <laughs> story made of very different uh, materials. Um, well, it sounds like <clears throat> you had to be kind of flexible because of the shooting circumstances and the budget and the like. Maybe storyboarding would have shackled you in some way and not allowed you to, to find everything on the set as you're shooting. Um, the thing is, there were um, there were things that needed to be very precise, especially because we didn't have a lot of time. So I knew that in stunt work and things like that. Yes, and even in the in the villa in the corridor, the the space was very narrow and very difficult to work with. And we had not a lot long time of shooting for everything we had to do. And I knew if I wanted to keep my ambitions. The only way to get the most of it was to prepare a lot. And of course, on set, there are always things that you have to adapt that are changing, uh, things that, you know, are not uh, are unexpected or don't work the way you thought it would work. So you have to readapt um, always. Um, but I think for me, the fact that it's very, very precise in my head when I'm shooting, uh, also thinking about the editing and, and the music helps me um, put on the screen the kind of obsession I have when I write and, you know, the, the sparkle I, I, I have and I think why the scene is going to work. And, and it's always about keeping during the process the intuition of what you have to keep and what you can discard and it doesn't matter but there are some elements that everybody tells you okay we don't need that or we don't need that or you can skip that and you know you have to keep it um yeah. and yeah. it's kind of a you can't really explain why in a very you know rational way but um um you know that's it's shots that are going to be very powerful in a way. And, and yeah, and I think the, the difficulty of, of making those choices is what, you know, make all the creativity uh, stay together. Well, only the director has an overview of what the movie is, who uh, the actor knows his part. Uh, exactly. The cinematographer knows his part his or her part. Um, and you are the personality of the film. You wrote it, you directed it. And uh, so you're the only one who can have that, that knowledge and overview. 
Um, tell me about how Morocco was selected and how that might have uh, affected the telling of the story. Did you know it was going to be Morocco as you were writing it? Uh, no, not at all. At the beginning, I wrote the story in no particular place. It was a desert. It was, it, it's, you know, it was uh, basically it could be the, the American deserts uh, in my references. Um, but I knew I had to, you know, be flexible about where it was going to be because we didn't know where we would be able to shoot. So the important thing for me at some point was really that um, we couldn't tell where it is. And also that the desert becomes a very specific character in itself. And also where the reality can be a little bit transformed and the colors can be very vivid and, you know, reflect kind of hell on earth and kind of stuff. the Mad Max Fury Road was a very uh, uh, important reference for me for the colors and yeah, there's very a lot of amber and and earth tones, but heightened like Technicolor yeah. versions of what yellow and red looks like. Exactly. <laughs> so so basically, we started to scout in different countries because everything was depending on the cost and where we would find a desert together with a villa together with water and it was three elements that were not easy to find all together with our budget which was not very high so we 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 scouted in in Spain in Israel in Jordan in Morocco and finally it was in Morocco that we found at the same time the villa and the desert and the technical cruise and the budget, which was okay for us. So, right, and Morocco's uh, relationship with France, I would imagine, had a great deal to do with the funding issues. Well, in fact, not at all. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, we, we, there, is, there were not uh, funding we could apply to, but the, the technical crews there uh, were at the same time very, um, how do you say, um, efficient because they work on many shootings, uh, American shooting as well, which are happening there a lot. And it was a, cheap, a lot cheaper for us to shoot in Morocco rather than in France. So, um, but w- we knew we had to have very skillful uh, crews because there were a lot to do and with not many ta- much time. So we had to have a very uh, great crew, which was the case in, in Morocco. What was the biggest challenge, uh, whether it's shooting Morocco or a chase scene or a dramatic scene? Or what do you think was the, the one day that you ended your day's work and went, oh, God, I'm glad that's over? Well, basically, it was almost every day. Because <laughs> what is true in the, the, the weather conditions were very, very difficult because we were shooting in February. So it was very, very cold still at the time. And we were shooting a lot in the mountain with a freezing cold wind. And everybody was frozen basically most of the time. Even and though it looks like they're sweating their asses off. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So basically Matilda was uh, almost naked just with her bikini, all the crew was, you know, had winter jackets and boots oh my God. And, and the poor girl, she was freezing. So it was very, very difficult to have that. And we didn't have a lot of comfort, you know, facilities. We didn't have trailers. We didn't have a huge crew to take care of everything. So it was a lot, you know, Everybody had to put the hands, you know, in the dirt and doing things by themselves. And so in a way, I think it was great for the movie because I think for those kind of very physical movies, you can't escape from living it a little bit. You know, you can't be too comfy, I think, if you really want to have, you know, uh, this print you know on, on screen and for instance the cave was a real cave so it was uh, cold it was humid 
it was um, dirty. <laughs> it was it was tight. So, it was d- you know, difficult and, to shoot in contained spaces like that. Exactly, and you know, the more the more and more the shooting is going, the people are getting tired. And but you have to keep everybody on board and keep everybody, you know, have their energy. And in the villa, there was this this end scene with the corridor where there was all this blood with which was a nightmare to deal with like everybody was you know slippering the actors were sticky all the time it was very tiring for them to have all this blood on them all the time uh, the crew couldn't go into the corridor because it was too narrow so uh, it was very, very intense, and also because we had to go fast. And and it's true that each scene has something difficult in it. Like there is when she's on the tree, she has her head, you know, uh, reversed, so she can't, you know, hold more than thirty seconds. Yeah, she's so. upside down. Yeah. Exactly. So we have to have a double to do the rehearsal and after we have to set her up. And so we have to, after 30 seconds, we have to cut the take because, you know, she can't stand it. And there is the blood and there is, this day it was very, very hot. (laughs) (laughs) It was uh, difficult too. So we had to bring shadow for for the actress. and All the fun and and glamour of movie making. Exactly. And it's true. I was speaking with Matilda one day on set and she told me, and it's so true, you know, it's amazing because in this movie, there is not one scene where it's just, you know, you at a terrace of a cafe walking, you know, somebody pass by or, you know, those kind of transition scenes where nothing really happened. There is none of this. It's either in, in the river or in the cave or, you know, your head upside down or in the mountain, in the car or in the blood. And there was always something difficult to deal with. So the accelerator true. is all the way down to the floor. I never seen. <laughs> exactly. So it's true that for the crew, it was very, very demanding and very tiring. And when you're shooting, uh, uh, we were shooting six days a week. So we had almost no time to really rest. So the more and the more the shooting goes, you know, the more and more people's, you know, are on the nerves <laughs> and yes. you have to keep going and keep everybody, you know, <laughs> till the end. And that was very, very difficult. But at the end, I think we knew we were doing good stuff, I think. Uh, even if sometimes people, you know, uh, didn't understand everything we were doing and why why I was spending so much time filming ants and, you know, all right. those kind <laughs> of things that all the crew cannot understand totally that don't have all the you know of the elements in in their head but it and you was, couldn't afford a second unit or insert unit to do those shots everything was all done first unit exactly yeah and so it was it was a real experience but in a way i must confess that i kind of like it a lot to you know for me I would be very bored, like shooting a film in an apartment with my chair all the time, and you know, and a romantic I mean, comedy. That's next for yeah. you, right? <laughs> well, like <laughs> like Nietzsche <laughs> says, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think for me, the experience of the shooting, really living something, is part of the the the, the great experience of making a movie. And I think a kind a part of this can be seen on the screen, you know. That's oh, no question. Exactly. It's the real thing. Nobody's in a studio. Nobody's in a comfy in a sound stage. They're out there living it. Yeah. And I think for a part, you, you need that to create also something special. Um, of course, for the next part, I hope I will have a little bit more money. To <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> But I think you have to be involved anyway, 200 persons as a, as a director. And yeah, and you can't, you know, everybody's in the dirt. You can be, you know, totally on your tower with your... <laughs> in your tent, nice and comfy in front of the monitor. Yeah. So was the decision made early on to, to do it primarily in English? Um, so the thing is, first of all, we... As soon as I had the script, we questioned about whether we were going to do it in French or in English, because it's true that for those kind of movies, um, 
it almost it's so difficult to do it in French that the first you know reflex is okay let's do it in English it will be easier but uh, as a French filmmaker for my first feature it was very important for me that it would be grounded in a way uh, in France and so at first of all we I said, okay, I, I want to do it in, in French. I, it's my first feature. I, I want it to be grounded from where I am from. And it's a French but, movie. Exactly, yeah. So basically we tried to finance it and cast it in French and in France, but we didn't succeed to gather uh, the whole budget. So at some point we were facing a wall and I said, okay, if, you know, if we can't do it in French, I don't care. Okay, let's go for English. Um, but we didn't manage as well when it was full 100% English because the cast was not big enough. And, you know, it was a very small movie. And I wanted to keep it that way for my first feature to be free 100%, you know, to go wherever I want and to be totally independent. So for the American financier, it was not very you know, attractive uh, either. So basically that's where we had the idea to mix both language, to have half in French and half in English. Also because there are not a lot of dialogues, it's like maybe 14 minutes of dialogues in the whole series. <laughs> Which makes so, it very international in its appeal. Exactly, and also because the story was um, was allowing it, it makes sense, like for those guys, you know, they're maybe working, I don't know, in stock exchange, or I don't know, it's kind of international story that could happen everywhere, and so it, it was making sense, I wouldn't have done it if it was very strange all of a sudden, you know, to mix languages. So basically, this way we could benefit uh, the French system, being a French movie, having the French, you know, financing, and also benefit from, of course, the more international value that was uh, brought by the English language. And that's how we finally managed to gather the budget we needed to, to do the shooting. So... Uh, yeah, that's how it happened. Well, this is a kind of film that is very international. The rape revenge thriller is a kind of genre. I talked about it in the introduction a little bit that I'm not normally drawn to because it's mostly 85 minutes of rape and five minutes of revenge. And it's exploitive and it's about the torture and it just beats the shit out of the woman and hopes to titillate an audience in that way. This Despite all of its brutality and its violence, it's not cruel. Um, it's not, it doesn't, you don't want to take a shower afterwards, you know, the way you do with them. I assume that was your intent. Yeah, definitely. When I, basically when I started to write, at the, the, first, um, the first idea was not a rape and revenge, Um the idea was really this girl who would who would be seen a certain way and would transform. And after, when I started to bring all the elements together, the hunting game, the desert, the, the villa, I, I figured out that the worst thing that could happen to her in a symbolical way, uh, almost, was the rape. Uh, but it's not the only thing that she's a victim of. Um, before the rape, she's seen in a certain way that makes the main the men think that they're going to be allowed to act in a, in a certain way. But that's why also um, movies like uh, Kill Bill or, or Mad Max, the first one, or Rambo, really much more inspired me than the rape and revenge because it was for me a lot more about the birth of a hero and the birth of a very strong powerful iconic character that I was interested into rather than the rape in itself so the rape was the turning point when she's totally crushed and she's gonna be reborn from her own ashes and also I wanted to find a way to not 
ground the violence in 100% reality. I didn't want at all to make a very realistic horror, torture porn film, where it's very sadistic and very, as you said, um, makes you feel very, very uncomfortable. I knew I wanted it to be violent, but to um, to be some kind of artistic violence, like in the movies I love from Tarantino, from Cronenberg, who creates something with flesh and the way he uses the blood and the violence, or also the South Korean films or South Korean cinemas, which is in so much excess that it's very baroque and very operatic and it's not a very realistic and when i was writing i knew this was the path i wanted to take and not the very horror first degree you know torture or sadistic thing um so that's really what guided the, the writing and also guided the way I wanted to de deal with the wounds and the blood and and the way I wanted to to film it on set then. Well, Matilda Lutz, it becomes the heart and soul of this movie and it's an amazing performance. Tell me how you found her and the conversations that you had with her about who this character is. Well, this was a, a funny process. I think it's a kind of a, maybe it's a kind of metaphor with the way I, I didn't end up in film school, <laughs> finally. Because um, the, the casting process was very long because uh, I was casting in different countries, also because we didn't know in which language we were going to shoot. So I was doing casting in France, in Europe, and a little bit in the States. And Matilda was the first actress I met when I started casting um, in the States. And it was even uh, not for the, the girl part. I was going there only four days for uh, the, one of the guy part. And I had heard of her and we just met for a coffee and had a great discussion and just auditioned in my, in my room before I take my plane and... And after I went back to France, go on with the casting, and and finally I decided to go with another actress from from Europe. So um, I called her to tell her that I and it's true that I had a very strong meeting with her, and I thought she was very interested. But I decided to go with somebody else, and I hope we were maybe going to work together on another project. And she told me that she was very touched that I took time to call her in person. And and finally, the, the movie like uh, was postponed for a few months because we were still waiting for the financing. And when finally the movie was green light, uh, I started prep with the other actress. She came doing all the prints for the wounds and everything. And basically, basically, uh, I think at that point she started to realize that the movie was going to be real and she started to realize what she was going to have to do with her body and everything that it was going to demand from her. And I think she got scared and she quit the project. Oh, wow. And it was basically maybe two or three weeks before we starting shooting. Nice. So that was kind of a <laughs> hard, you know, <laughs> moment to overcome. And, well, and the lucky course, news was you had somebody great in your back pocket. Exactly. And I saw it immediately to all the actresses I had seen. And Matilda was the first one who came back in my mind because I had a strong connection with her and she was um, in my very top, you know, choices, but also because she had told me something when we met that she really trusted the project and that she really trusted me as a director. And I knew that I needed this trust uh, to make this film because as we were speaking it was going to be you know very very difficult to shoot it, it was good it was on the paper but when it's on the paper you say okay it's going to be difficult but when you're on set and you have all those long days tired wound three hours makeup and everything you have to you know 
to be in it and until the end. So I called her and she, luckily for me, she was available and still wanted to do it. So the day after she was on the plane and we wow. started, you know, uh, rehearsing in Paris fittings and, and everything went very quick. And I think it's good in a way we didn't have a lot of time to prep because of course we we had you know in in casting our self tapes we already spoke about the two sides of the character but it was mainly the fitting that helped you know shaping this and also on set you know facing the elements that right the immediacy of what is in front of you yes exactly yeah and yes yeah, so, and, and i think this this movie was for a lot of people, a matter of, you know, being in it in the moment and get on the train and, you know, and it was a movie I knew that couldn't wait for ages to be done. It had its own energy and needed, I needed to keep it and to make it happen, you know, kind of fast. And yeah, it could have bled to death if it, if it didn't get made. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so... Now the film is available for consumption, uh, but tell me about what it became quite a sensation at all of the festivals around the world, especially the genre festivals. Uh, tell me your first experience of being at a festival screening where everybody exploded with it, where you saw how it played with an audience. It was a very, very special moment. It was... Uh when the first selection of the movie was at in Toronto in the Midnight, Ma Midnight Madness uh, at the, the best place of all to do it yeah exactly and for us when we were you know in post production it was kind of our, even before it was our main goal it was the ground for us if we were selected there it was the best that could happen to the movie so basically when we were in 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 post production and we knew that you know that we were selected i knew something happened there and it was um but we were kind of late you know to finish the the movie there were still post production to finish so basically i finished you know the movie maybe three or four days before taking the plane for the premiere in in toronto so it was kind of uh, you know everything that's mixing being tired having finished my first feature taking the plane to go to toronto for this amazing you know uh, slot in the in the midnight madness and 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 when you first see it with an audience it's really the first time the baby's born yes like, really. it's the birth the the time okay you give it you know you abandon it because you you know you are during all those months it's so much work to control every detail to shape everything as you want and it's all the time a matter of faith because you don't know if you know people are going to respond you don't know how it's going to be taken and when you're there and you're having the audience reacting it's really yeah, it's really a magical moment. It's um, basically what you are living for to to experience those moments. And well, it had to be quite emotional. Yeah, it was very, very, very emotional. And it's, it's strange because it's a little bit unreal at the same time. You, you're there, but you don't totally realize it. And, and I think it's little by little when you start to have the press, you know, the first good, you know, reviews and people starting talking about the movies and being, you know, all these things that are happening in, in Toronto the first time, we knew something was starting to happen and it was more and more from festival to festival and it was amazing how it, uh, everything, yeah, came together until having a real American release. It was it was a dream. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you? Um, now I'm I'm hundred percent in that question. <laughs> and I've heard you say that you don't want your next movie to be a horror film. Um, it's not hundred percent true. It's for for me this one is not a horror film. So it's a it's a genre film, but for me it's not horror. And 
I want to. Um, I know I'm working now on finding um, the idea where I could at the same time express my my love for uh, how do you say some kind of excess and craziness and you know and things that go out of control which are the thing I love the most mm -hmm. and where <clears throat> you can create something very powerful all together with themes that. Um, I need to be very uh, passionate about to uh, be willing to go for, you know, all those difficulties, you know, that's going to be on the way. So, um, yeah, so I take a little time now to really put the different ideas I have and find the right one for me uh, for my next projects. Because it's, it's a big commitment, like you're going to be, you know, living with it for two or three years. So you have to know you're going to stand the project you're going to live with. It's kind of the same of a partner. So you have to choose the right one. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. And I thank you so much. This is our first ever Skype interview for Postmortem. And I love the movie and can't wait to see what you do next. And thank you for being a part of our show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.